Well, I want to begin this morning by, by sharing something that I'm not real big on. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. And that is when pastors go on and on about how hard ministry is. They post their articles, write their comments, send out their newsletters. And to me, it's just kind of a turnoff. It's sort of an attention-grabbing kind of thing. I think it reflects a defeatist, victimhood mentality, uh, not commensurate to the office of pastor. It is a great privilege to serve as a pastor. And by the way, what did you think you were signing on for when you were called to preach a crucified Savior, right? Now, having said that, all of that, not to, to contradict that, I will concede, because it's why this text is needed, it's out of the context of which it emerges, while pastoring is a great privilege, it also sometimes is no big picnic. And so I will do something that I will not do publicly online or with newsletters, but I'll do it right here because, again, it's, it's the context out of which this, this, this passage arises. Give you a few examples of how, while ministry is a great privilege, it also sometimes is no big picnic. It is um, a, a few examples, just, just to speak from the heart, okay? Uh, is it's, There's something that crushes your heart when you massively pour into somebody, maybe over a long time, you, maybe you, you married them, maybe you were there at 11.30 at night when they had a huge eruption in their family, whatever the case may be, you've massively poured into somebody and they just ghost you. This vocation is unique in that it's the only vocation where someone who is a friend leaves the organization, in this case a church, they often not only just leave the organization, they leave you. Or, or your spouse who they had a relationship with, or, or your children, sometimes without so much as a goodbye, or even a real reason if there is a brief conversation. That's hard. It's hard that sometimes there are seasons of great growth, and other times there are seasons of winnowing loss, to the point where you wake up in the morning and you say, am I making any kind of difference at all? Are we making any kind of difference at all? Well, your life, your family, is often lived under a microscope to be seen and, and sadly sometimes whispered about. <laughs> there can be gossip. There can be slander. There's spiritual warfare. Issues of culture invade the church. COVID stuff, racial stuff, sexual stuff. And you just try and scripturally address those things and sometimes unfairly categorize as being political when you're just trying to be biblical. That's just a smattering. And then there's the personal stuff. Your, your own personal struggles, struggles with sin your own temptations, family struggles, 
be it relational or financial, seasons of sickness, a devastating death in the family. To use the language of our text, as Courtney just read it, there is ample opportunity to lose heart. That is to become discouraged. That's what that expression means, verse 1. And there's kind of two aspects to this losing heart, becoming discouraged. Aspect one is to become weary to the point where you're like, I can't take this anymore. I'm done. I'm out. I'm quitting. Weary to the point of quitting. The other aspect of this word is meaning wobbly. That is, the word can mean to act in cowardice, to act cowardly, where you begin to compromise your convictions. You can begin to compromise the word of God. Now, it's not just pastors who face these temptations. It's you in the pew as well. Every Christian faces the temptation to, even, to become weary to the point of quitting or wobbly to the point of compromising because every single Christian, without exception, is called to some level of ministry. Am I right? Are we not aware, husbands, of the ministry that we're called to have with our, with our wife? And wives, are you not aware of the ministry you're called to have with your husband? And parents, are you not aware of the ministry you're called to have to your children? Are we not aware that for the Christian, the workplace is supposed to be a sacred place where you show what God's like through your effort and your ethics? Do we not know that our neighborhood, as it were, is supposed to be our mission field? Do we not remember that our friends are our mission field? And, and, and maybe speaking of that, you, you just kind of in a stabbing effort tried to share Christ maybe with a coworker or a family member, and it didn't go so well. In fact, it's kind of turned down the warmth of that relationship a few clicks ever since you did that. Maybe you took some initiative at work or in the church even, or in your household, in your own family, or in your neighborhood, and the response was not a nothing. No fruit, nothing. Maybe, and some of you have shared this, we've all experienced, there's some issue in your larger family that you couldn't compromise on because of your biblical convictions, and for that, you've been called this and you've been called that. Maybe, maybe you just prayed, simply this. Every Christmas, we hand out the cards, and we say, hey, invite people out to our Christmas services. And maybe you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and somebody said they're going to come every time, and nobody came. And, and you're discouraged. Maybe you're labeled at work as this or that. You're ostracized. And then you have your own struggles of life. All of that decidedly takes a toll on you too, doesn't it? So you too, bottom line, can be tempted to become weary and quit in your walk with God or wobbly and, or compromise in your walk with God. Now, the guy who wrote this text, you know, he took a lot of flack. You know that, right? Both inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church, you know what they said about Paul? They said he was weak and unimpressive. Inside the church, they blew off his counsel. 
inside the church. They got mad at him for the, him calling them to repentance. That's what preachers do as they seek to walk in repentance themselves. They got mad at him. They, in fact, were more loyal to unfaithful preachers of the gospel who told them what they wanted to hear than Paul himself. That's just inside the church, and that's just a smattering. But outside the church, chapter 11 lists some of the things that he experienced. It tells us in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, he suffered imprisonments, countless beatings, some to the point of death, 39 lashes with dreaded cat of nine tails, three times beaten near death with rods, one time stoned to near death, dangers in shipwrecks, dangers in rivers, through robbers, his own people, Gentiles in the wilderness and the sea, false brothers, Toil, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, exposure to elements, anxiety he was racked with for all the churches. That's what Paul experienced. And while so many of his peers just bailed out in their walk with God, they're called to preach the gospel, or others did this, they basically coasted along, tried to avoid any possible offense. Not Paul, not Paul, not Paul. Paul remained faithful all the way to the end, all the way to Rome when he would lay his head on a wood block and with one singular crunch and thud of an executioner's ax have his head separated from his body. So Paul has some credibility with me. I want to heed Paul's words, don't you? He's got something to say about this matter of being encouraged in the face of the temptation of becoming weary and quitting or wobbly and compromising. That's where we're going to go this morning, okay? Long introduction, because I wanted us all to see this text is for all of us. Encouragement for weak and wobbly hearts. Maybe you're already there. Maybe, maybe you're on the verge of quitting a relationship that God doesn't want you to quit. Maybe you're on the verge of quitting a ministry God doesn't want you to quit. Or testifying to a worker that God wants you to testify. You're, I'm not doing that anymore. Or maybe you're not there. All of us need a shot of inoculation, right? Because we can all, in 24 hours, and 24 seconds, go there, right? So here's truth number one. Paul gives us our motivation. What do you think that motivation is based on verse one? What's that motivation? Call it out. What's that motivation, family? The mercy of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, there's the expression, we do not lose heart. Listen, the mercy of God. Paul never forgot the mercy of God that knocked him to the ground. Remember that? Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, all recount his saving testimony. He never forgot the grace and mercy that knocked him to the ground saved him, and then sent him to the Gentiles. In a light, in a flash of life, his life and eternity were changed. Have you read that account? He was going to kill Christians, and God stopped him dead in his tracks and made him alive. And that mercy of Paul, that Paul received, not getting what he deserves, was a driving force and factor in his life. He'll write this. I love these words. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, that this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to do what? To save sinners. 
He says, of whom I am the foremost, the old version, I'm the chief. You remember that? And then he says, but I received, anybody remember the word? Mercy. I, I received mercy that in me first, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who were to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. What's Paul saying? This mercy I received is crazy. If God had mercy on me, he can have mercy on, mercy on you. Do you see how that was a driving factor in his life? And, and by the way, next paragraph, same chapter, he talks about two cats who, who apostatized, who made a shipwreck of their faith. You know what their names were? Hymenius and Alexander. Could it be that they forgot the mercy of God? You ever heard of, uh, I'm sure you have, I've been in church any length of time, John Newton. He was once a slave owner, and then he became a slave all during that time, a slave to sin. After he was saved, he, he wrote the most famous song there's ever been, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He never got over it. He never got over it. In fact, he had in his study, because he was called to preach, Deuteronomy 15.15 in a plaque. You know what that says? Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondservant in the land of Egypt, but the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Remember, you were a slave to sin. Jesus set you free. You can't forget that. Near the end of his life, his health was failing. A colleague in ministry visited him. They were having some last words, and, and, and uh, he says to him, John Newton says to his friend, I don't remember much. My memory is failing me, but these two things I remember. You know this quote, that I am a great sinner, but that Jesus is a great Savior. The ultimate motivation not to become weary to the point of quitting or wobbly the point of compromising, is remembering the mercy of God that you have been lavished with. L listen, listen, let, let me just bring this point one to a close. If God had not rescued you, you would be toast. But because he has, let's spend the rest of our lives lifting the toast, as it were, clink to God, saying thank you, for great is your mercy. <clears throat> We must regularly rev the tachometers of our heart, the RP, get the RPM's heart up to see how excessively and lavishly and profusely and overwhelmingly God has lavished us with his grace at the tremendous cost of the cross. Motivation number one is this, the mercy of God, the mercy of God. By the way, have you received the mercy of God? Are you saved? Are, are you saved? Now, second thing. <coughs> Not only our motivation, he gives us our renunciation. Verse two, he says this. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Literally, that expression is <coughs> the hidden things of shame. I'm, I'm, I'm renouncing. I'm saying no to the hidden things of shame. Then he continues to explain and amplify what we are to renounce when he says we refuse two things. 
We, we refuse to practice cunning. You know what cunning is? That word appears five times in your New Testament. Every time, bad connotation. It's used of Satan. It's used of Satan's ministers, 2 Corinthians 11, who masquerade as angels of light. Angels of light. There's plenty of them out there, isn't there? Tell you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. It means to intentionally trick, misrepresent, or deceive for some desired ends. He says, we refuse to do that. He goes on to say, we refuse to tamper with God's word. That word just appears one time in the New Testament, a bunch of times in extra biblical Greek literature of the era, and it means to to dilute. It was used of uh, wine cellars diluting their wine with water so as to expand their profits, but ultimately adulterate their product. Used of people who would sell gold, they would dilute it with other metals to adulterate it and get more. It boils down to this. We have a temptation, do we not, to water down the truth so as not to get a negative response. Isn't that true? It's a temptation. And, and listen, there is a way to intentionally be so ambiguous about some subject across the pulpit, across the work table, across the kitchen table, wherever. There, there's a way to be intentionally ambiguous. So, hey, if you want to take it that way, you can. All good. No harm, no foul. And if you want to take it this way, well, by all means, take it that way. That way, I'm cool with everybody. Mm-mm, mm. We renounce that. Of course, we are to be judicious, right? And wise and gracious. Jesus said, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now, John 16, 12, to his own disciples. But isn't that a different thing than deliberately obscuring the truth? Trying to be winsome or nuanced so as not to offend with truth. Let me ask you this. Can you think of a time you've ever shrunk from the truth in a conversation? pulpit, Sunday school, a beer with a teammate, a coffee with a, wor- a co-worker at the, at the kitchen table. Can you think of a time when you've ever been tempted and given way to watering down the word out of the fear of people? With a friend, with a, with a co-worker, with a child, a parent, a sibling, a spouse. Have you ever done that? And anyone here who would be honest would say, yes. And Paul is simply saying, you avoid weariness to the point of quitting and wobbliness to the point of compromising. Just just drawing your line in the sand saying, I'm not going to do that. I renounce that. I will not do that. Instead, Paul gives us something positive. There's a positive commitment we need. What is that positive commitment? He says, But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Do you see that? The open, not, and it's one thing to say, hey, I hold to the truth, but are you willing to have the open statement of the truth? Do you see that? And the word open statement, fascinating word, has as its root either light or lamp. In a world of darkness, you turn on the light through the open statement statement of it. Woo! Sometimes that's shocking though, isn't it? You ever been 
dead asleep, like deep sleep, like heavy dream sleep. And suddenly you're woken up and the light goes on. And what do you just instinctively do? You can't, you can't see the, it's a blinding, you gotta close your eyes, right? It's shocking. That's the whole point. People are in darkness. And we gotta be willing to bring the light even when it is shocking. And we do so in the sight of God, it says right there. That at the end of the day, the ultimate audience that really matters is God himself. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. So second of all, there is our renunciation. That brings us, are you all with me? To our realization that people are blind. Remember years ago, I became a Christian. I was 26 in the Marine Corps, and uh, I got to see some of my immediate family a couple months after that. I remember somebody saying, what has happened to you? You're so, that's so intolerant. That's so narrow-minded. And I did have some sharp edges and probably still do. But what I believed, what they were saying, right, was intolerant and narrow-minded. And then I remember her saying, mockingly, oh, that's some kind of gospel you believe. Look how few people believe it. And look at some of the kind of people who do. They're weird. And she was right. There's a lot of weird people at our church. Good weird and bad weird, just like any church, okay, all of us, right? But there was some substance to what she was saying. But God even tells us that. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7 that there's a broad way that leads to destruction. And most people are going that way, baby. And there is a narrow way that leads to life. And a few people are going that way. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things. Let's own it. God has chosen the weak things. Let's own it to confound the mighty and all the rest, right? And what they were saying is they were saying, Paul, you're a weak man and you preach a weak gospel. You can imagine them saying something like this. Paul, you say your gospel is so great, but look how ineffective it is. Look how few people believe it and and look at those weirdos who do. And that's the context of verse three. Paul says, yes, exactly. Verse three, look at what he says. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And he goes on to explain, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, it is veiled. There are a lot of people who don't believe. Now, let me explain this God of this world part, okay? I don't want you to get tripped up on this. When it says God of this world, it's not saying in the most literal fashion that Satan is God. How do we know that? The Bible tells us there's one true living God, Isaiah 45, 20, and so many other places. When it says Satan is the God of this world, it's saying he's the God of this world, almost like it says that Baal is the God of the Canaanites, right? A demon at the end of the day, right? A demon that they worshiped. And at the top of the demonic food chain, at the top of the satanic hierarchy, is none other than the devil himself, the God of this world. Jesus called him in John chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, the prince of demons. He calls him in, in John, the prince of this world. Do you remember in Ephesians 2, Paul says, the prince of the power of the air. 
you need to know that under God, under God, Satan does have a certain sway. Now, don't get it twisted. It's not yin-yang, not, you know, equal forces, right? No, under the sovereignty of God, Satan does have a certain sway. And we also need to know that people are born blind, okay? You don't have to give little Johnny classes on how to do wrong, right? Encouragement, hey, in case you ever need to know how to lie, here's a few ways that you can do it, you know? No, you, you labor, right, to bring truth into their life. We're born blind. And what's more is we're born wanting to stay blind. Jesus says in John 3, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Satan's role in this? Well, his role is this. He works overtime in tons of creative ways, I don't have time to unpack, to keep people blind. And Ephesians 2 puts it all together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this age, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, here's the point. I'll make it by way of illustration. Somebody name one of the most beautiful paintings on the face of the earth. I don't know. The Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa. And I have never shared that opinion about that painting, but I just go with that, okay? All right? The Mona Lisa. Most beautiful painting. And let's say you, you stand five feet away from the Mona Lisa, a blind person. Okay, you with me? And you ask the blind person, hey, what do you think about this most beautiful painting ever, the Mona Lisa? And they say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see anything. Would you say, well, if that painting was more beautiful, if that painting was better, that blind person would be able to see it. Would you say that? No. Do you see the point? The point is this. Here's the point. The problem is not the message, the gospel. The problem is people's blind eyes, blind heart, blind minds. That's the problem. P.E. Edwards in his commentary said this, the unveiled gospel is veiled to them who are perishing because it is veiled in them. Thus, it's not the gospel that stands condemned, it's them that stand condemned. The absence of belief in its saving effects shows their blindness. So changing the message, as many do, that's not the answer. Because the problem is not the message the good news of Christ, the problem is the people who need it. And by the way, when, whenever people change the message to accommodate the times, to accommodate our fleshly impulses, to, whenever that happens, what happens is you, you distort who the true living God is and you create a whole bunch of fake converts. And Paul's ordered to renounce that because he has this realization. So then what do you do? Number four, Paul talks about our proclamation, verse 5. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen, family, Paul was committed to doing the one thing, the one thing that can give light to the spiritually blind. You know what that is? Proclaiming the pure, unadulterated gospel that Jesus is Lord of all and all that that means. And yes, it begins right there. It begins with who he is. 
Lord of all. Recently, Andy Stanley, who's said a number of unbiblical things, but I bring him up because he makes the point here. He apologized for telling, he apologized to non-Christians for Christians telling them how they should live. I don't know if you saw that clip or heard that sermon. Well, first of all, that's arrogant because you don't represent every Christian, okay? But, but here's the thing about that. All it was at the end of the day was a clever, thinly veiled misrepresentation, the cunning part, to curry favor with the lost and Christianettes. Because I have, I'm sure there's one out there, but I have never heard, and you probably haven't either, have you ever heard a Christian tell a non-Christian, you should live just like me? Anyone? anyone that, that would be kind of arrogant, but has anyone ever done that? But are we not called to tell people you should live like God says, right? Because he's the creator. Even in the issues that we covered in, in Sunday school class, he is the creator. And you, you owe him your obedience because your very lifeblood is because of him. You breathe out of his pleasure. So, we tell him, Jesus is Lord. So I'm a lot, a lot of evangelism doesn't start there. First, he, you gotta know he's Lord. Not, not your feelings, not your desires, not your vocation, not your, not your bank account, not your political party affiliation, not your job. Jesus is Lord. Nothing, none, of those, none of those other idols that you put in your heart are. And that's why Paul in Acts chapter 17 preached at the Areopagus, that marvelous sermon, cut to the quick. And he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereas he has given proof to all men and that he raised him from the dead, Jesus Christ. So we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. You need to submit to his lordship. But of course, uh, we haven't done so hot in submitting to his lordship, right? Which is why this other part is really good news. We not only tell people who Jesus is, Lord, we tell them what he's done as Savior. It says Jesus Christ, or literally Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the anointed one. Anointed for what? To live a perfect life in our place. To live the life we never could live. To die the death that we should die. To pay the penalty in full and to rise again. That was Paul's message. That was his message. First Corinthians chapter 1. Jews require a sign. Greeks to Mac wisdom. We ain't playing that game. We preach Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered unto you that which is of first importance, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to Scripture. Well, in Corinth, where giving speeches was sort of the TikTok or entertainment of the day, where these speech givers would dress up in fancy clothes and give eloquent speeches with fancy words where what mattered wasn't the substance of what you said, but the style. Didn't matter what you said, but how you said it. Paul says, no, 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 we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified. Doesn't mean he didn't preach out of his experience appropriately, he did. Doesn't mean that he didn't share his interest, he, he did. Somebody once said, does that mean when you share, whether over the pulpit or a kitchen table or wherever else, that you, you shouldn't, you know, um, maybe tell 
a story or a joke? And no, that's fine to do that. Somebody asked an old preacher, is it okay to do that? He said, yeah, a couple pinches of salt makes for a good bowl of soup, but too much salt makes for a really bad soup. So yes, but at the end of the day, we reach and preach with ourselves, but not ourselves. We preach Christ. And he says, we are servants. That means slaves whose mission and commission and mandate is to talk about Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen in power, and returning in glory. And I would just say to you, if you don't see the big deal of all this, I would just say, God, would you take the blinders off? If this is like, okay, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's how it was for me for 26 years. I would have called myself a Christian. I mean, I'm not Hindu. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not uh, Muslim. I'm not seven, you know, I'm none of those things. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm American. No, 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 no. And then one day, oh, let me just get to it. This is what happened. Number five, our jubilation. Did you notice in verse five, the tone starting to go verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, and then verse five, it starts to go like this. I mean, you kind of read into it, but you're just trying to sense Paul's tone, right? If in verse five, his tone begins to rise, baby, in verse six, he, he, he goes vertical, man. It just takes off. It soars, I believe, with a strong tone of joy and exaltation, excitement, or as I put it here, jubilation. Let me read it. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is so pumped about. This is why I say it soars. As you share the gospel in all the places you do, in all the ways that you do, we all come at it different ways, same truth, Christ crucified, buried, and raised, but we come at it in different ways. As you do that, God is able to take a person from blindness. Oh, yeah, thanks for sharing that, bro. Yeah, that's cool for you, but that's nonsense to me, man. He's able to take that person, bam, and say, what? are you kidding me? God loved me and gave his son for me? I want this Jesus. He's able to do that. And he goes back to day one of creation. This is really cool. He says, the same God who spoke day one into creation is able to speak day one of new creation in Christ into a dead person's life. That the same God who said, let there be light over the darkness of creation is able to say, let there be light over the darkness of someone still lost in sins. He's able to do that. And the past tense says, has shown, shows that something that he did in the past. I spent late Friday afternoon, about an hour at CareNet in Detroit, wonderful outreach ministry to uh, women who are considering abortion, providing a better way, life, and the gospel. And uh, I talked to Valerie for quite a while, but then her husband came in, and just a great guy, and we were recounting how we both became Christians about the same time in our 20s. And he said, it was like, this is what he said, the light went on. I'd heard this truth all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. She wasn't, he was. But one day, boom, the light went on. That's what Paul's pumped about, this power of regeneration. I don't have time for the sake of time to unpack, 
But in chapter three, he talks about the glory of the old covenant. He's making a contrast here in chapter four. The glory of the old covenant had a, had, had a certain glory, but ultimately it was a glory of condemnation. The glory of the new covenant, chapter four, is a greater glory because it's a glory of salvation. In the words of Colossians chapter one, this is what happens when the light is turned on. You are literally translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. You, 1 Thessalonians, one of the chapters there, literally become a children of light. Before you were like the children of the corn, okay? Now you're the children of light. You're alive in Christ. A new creation, Paul is nothing less than amped up. That's such an understatement. So pumped about God's power to make dead things alive, to make blind things see. That kept him from becoming so weary that he would quit and wobbly that he would compromise. Now, I'm going to run through these last two points. Will you let me do that? The game doesn't start for a while. Who wants to watch that game anyway now, right? I'm bitter. I'm bitter. I got to give you this, these last two. The calculation you need to make. Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. There's the same expression again. Become weary or wobbly. Though our outer self is wasting away. You ever feel like that? Yeah. In so many different ways, physically, mentally. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As I shared in my introduction, for pastors and you in the pew alike, all of us who, who claim the name of Christ, life can be really hard, can it? I mean, really hard sometimes. But like one commentator says, the truth is, uh, most of us are kindergartners in the school of suffering. Paul, he was getting his graduate degree. Now, that's not to diminish the pain that we feel. But Paul, and you heard about his suffering. I just gave you a smattering of it. Paul called his suffering light. You've been smoking boot bands, dude? What, what's up with that? How can you say this is light? How can you even say my suffering is light? How can you say that? How can he say your suffering's light? How can he say that? That's some kind of audacity, is it not? Well, there's actually two really good reasons he can call our suffering light, starting with his own. First of all, he says, light momentary. Can you look back on something in your life that just racked you with pain, physically, emotionally, mentally? that you've actually forgotten about. You just had to think about it. Or you actually can look back and laugh at it now. So a lot of our deepest pains are even momentary in this life, are they not? But even if you are born with something that gives you pain up and down your whole life, or maybe a devastating event happens, you say at age 39, that you're gonna carry around the rest of your life. Even that, Listen, even that is momentary on the stop. It's less than a nanosecond on eternity's stopwatch, is it not? It is, in the end, momentary. So that's one reason it's light. But the other reason he calls it light is light because it's what is preparing for you. What is preparing for you? Can you visualize right now one of those old school scales? You got a little plate right there, a little plate right there, and you put, and so you weigh, they will weigh stuff. I want you on this side, 
to think of a few painful things that you've experienced. The big things that come to mind. Put them right there. Put them right there. Maybe stuff you can't even, that's so painful you can hardly even talk to your spouse about. Deep, painful things. Put them right there. It's heavy, isn't it? It's real heavy. But then on the other side, Paul drops the eternal weight of glory, and it's just like, whoo! That stuff goes flying as the eternal weight of glory just drops that scale. Is Paul saying there's no weight to your affliction? He's not saying that at all. There is, it hurts sometimes a lot. All he is saying is the infinite weight of future glory that that suffering is preparing for you is far, 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 far more heavier, far heavier. And that's why he says, beyond all comparison. God is preparing for you through your suffering, eternal way to glory. Now, are you gonna believe that or not? Am I gonna believe that or not? Our Kent Hughes were wise to listen to his pastoral counsel when the apostle suffered affliction. He did not focus his thoughts on how heavy the affliction was, but on how heavy the glory would be because of that affliction. If we in the midst of our affliction will see it as it is, we will find our voices again and be able to sing songs in the night. Listen, God never said it was going to be easy. But he is saying what I'm preparing for you is going to blow you away, an eternal way to glory. So in the words of Piper, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste it. And thus squander the weight of glory being accrued and stacked to your account. How would you do that? By giving into that weariness and quitting. By giving into that wobbliness and compromising. Instead, press on as you lean on the Lord and let him use your suffering. Let him use, this is for somebody here this day, you have not yet let God use your suffering to advance his kingdom. Maybe today, maybe that starts today. In mercy upon mercy, this light momentary affliction is preparing for you as you walk with him right now an eternal weight of glory for that. That's, that's, that's a pretty cool currency exchange, is it not? So do the math. Make the calculation. And with this I end, I went 31 minutes last time. I'm buying back some of that time, okay? Our attention. I got to give this to you because it's so, it's so helpful. Look at verse 18. As we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now that expression, as we look, hear me, has the force of gazing intently on something, of concentrating our attention on something with all of our might. As we do that, he says we must focus that gaze, we must focus that concentration, we must focus, here it is, that attention on the unseen. In other words, God is saying, like a, like a coach will say sometimes, or a parent, or a drill instructor, or whoever, hey, eyes up, eyes up. You ever said that? Eyes up. Eyes up. Because as you look at what you cannot see, I'm telling you, it's far more real than what you can see. Then it, it's far more real than this platform I'm standing on, legit. From the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you lay pillow your head at night, everything you, you interact with is transitory. The most beautiful flower, it fades. The healthiest person, she dies. He's not saying matter is bad. He, he said it's very good in the beginning. Nor is he saying, hey, don't take care of your earthly responsibilities. All he's trying to say with this looking is eyes up, eyes up. 
People have said you can be so earthly minded you won't be any, you can be so heavenly minded you won't be any earthly good. But according to Paul, if you're not heavenly minded, eyes up, you won't be any earthly good. Well, people have said, now let, let me just end right here. I think, let me end with this illustration. Have you ever been out to a meal with your family at a restaurant? And you look over on the next table, and every person at the table is just intently gazing at their phones. Like through the whole meal, mindlessly scrolling, fixing their attention on this, uh, on the content of the phone, on this virtual world, this virtual world. And don't you just want to shout out and say, hey, hey, eyes up, eyes up. There's life in front of you. Talk with them, laugh with them, look at them. Does anybody ever feel that way? I mean, but we all do it too, don't we? Because I think that's a parable on all of us. We spend so much time gazing at the world, incessantly scrolling on the world instead of looking up to Christ and his everlasting kingdom, his kingdom that shall not come to an end. Through his word, by his Holy Spirit, with the help of his people, which is why we come together every Lord's Day. Eyes up. May we have the fiber of Hebrews 13 and chapter four, where it talks about of those early saints. They said, for here we have no lasting city. We seek the city to come. So where are you? Where are you? How does, does God speak to you through this word of not becoming weary and wobbly? May these encouragements grow roots in your heart and bear fruit in your life.